I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. beginning the end so where to start this is a journey into sound brought to you in living color on wtdr how do you like that the fault dear buddhist is not in our stars but in ourselves good luck we care about your world stay tuned my guest is sasha strong Sasha is a non-binary gender person born into a male body. They have a psychotherapy practice in Portland, Oregon, serving gender non-binary people as well as those who are comfortable in their binary gender identities. They're also a practicing Buddhist, and they contributed a wonderful piece to a fascinating and wonderful new anthology titled Transcending trans-Buddhist voices. And we're going to be talking a lot about that nexus of experience as both a non-binary, non-gender conforming person and as someone who is exploring their broader sense of identity through the lens of Buddhism. Now, I've interviewed several queer and non-binary people on my show over the past few years, and there's still various aspects of this whole realm that are foreign to me mainly the language and how to navigate that area. And this book's actually also given me deep insight into Buddhism itself. I've done a fair amount of Buddhist practice, but I don't call myself a Buddhist. Like many of the people who've contributed to this book, I have found most of the Buddhist communities to be predominantly white, middle class, and pretty comfortable in their own privilege. Well, certainly in the U.S., it is mostly a white liberal hobby. And Western transmutations of Buddhism have really taken up this notion of self-improvement. So I think that it fits in with being insular and introspective. And so for folks who experience whiteness and certain kind of privilege, it makes sense to adapt a sort of religious practice that that supports that. You know, there's been a lot of critical analysis of Buddhism, particularly Western Buddhism, in the past few years, years and decades. And I think looking at the whole Nick Mindfulness movement, 
and how that colludes with just heteropatriarchy and whiteness is pretty interesting. So what is it about Buddhism that you particularly value? What do you consider to be the practical benefits of Buddhism from your perspective and your practice and the people that you relate to within Buddhism? Well, uh, I think first I would have to say that my relationship to Buddhism has changed a lot over the years. I started a practice in earnest in 2004. Since that time, I've had a really different tack to it at different moments of that. I think just acknowledging that some kind of evolution or, or change over time is important. Nowadays, my Buddhist practice is mostly integrated into my professional psychotherapy practice and just my day-to-day awareness. You know, it's mostly just kind of tuning into the present moment, whereas there have been times over the years where I had a very dedicated and serious meditation practice. And my master's degree is in contemplative psychotherapy, which really integrates Buddhism with counseling practice and, and stuff like that. So it's hard to distill it to a thimbleful because there's so much to it, you know, but I think today it gives me a sense of resilience and clarity and being in touch with my own wisdom as it emerges in the moment and having some kind of traction for working with humility and care for other people. You mentioned that your master's degree was basically about integrating the two into your work. Um, I'm curious how you've managed to do that and how you see that as a benefit bringing Buddhism into the mix with your clients. This particular strain of contemplative psychotherapy is at Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. That's my psychotherapy lineage. And in terms of in session with people, one way that the practice shows up is the notion of brilliant sanity or the notion that wisdom or basic clarity and openness comes before any kind of pathology or confusion or suffering. So that's a particularly Buddhist insight or suggestion about reality. It also goes by names like Buddha nature or the ground of being or ordinary mind. And so the teaching is that by tuning into the present moment, it's possible to contact something that is natural and present, that is basic awareness and wisdom about how to respond to reality. And then helping clients to orient towards their own brilliant sanity, both in an individual session and over the course of therapy, can help people move from thinking of their life as being entangled in problems to actually being most closely identified with some kind of wisdom and love and compassion that just happens naturally. How easy or how difficult is it to share that with new clients, especially clients that are really struggling particularly struggling to come to terms with their own identity issues, their gender identity issues within a culture that is very sharply binarily oriented? Well, I think on one hand, an attitude of being interested in people's basic sanity is what a lot of people miss out on in many psychotherapy relationships because people sometimes have had experiences in the past of being with therapists who wanted to kind of pigeonhole them as a problem category and develop a treatment plan around that. I think clients are mostly looking for a genuine human connection and hopefully I'm able to provide that. So there's a way that just being really human and interested in the other person 
can kind of implicitly convey an immediate respect for their own wisdom and trying to do therapy in a non-power over kind of way, but really eliciting people's own wisdom about what they need and being open to redirection from clients is another way that I really try to receive their organic intelligence about what they need. And just that whole stance, in a sense, can bring that about. And then in terms of gender, you know, I think that gender is this interesting realm of experience that is both, like, highly culturally encoded and tangled with privilege and oppression and is also just, like, spontaneous expression of energy that wants to happen. So part of, like, Buddhist philosophy talks about the emptiness of self and emptiness of phenomena. So when we talk about emptiness, it doesn't mean, like, void, but rather the absence of a solid and enduring self. Like, there's nothing solid and substantially real and enduring in time about anything that happens. Like, mountains last for a long time, but they're actually impermanent. And the sky, in a sense, is always there, but it's also always changing because there are things floating in it, and then if it's daytime and nighttime, the colors change and things like that. So just like that, the sense of self, who we are, changes throughout our life, yet we still have some kind of habit of thinking, oh, me and mine. And so I think that taking that lens of emptiness and putting it on gender and seeing gender as informed by causes and conditions, informed by choices that we and other people have made in the past and certain habits of mind that people have. Like, it's true that causes and conditions inform gender, but at the same time, gender itself is fluid and open. It's not actually constrained by anything. So that's something I've found for myself, is that the more I'm able to loosen my presuppositions about my gender and other people's gender, the more freedom there is for people to express naturally in the moment. So it sounds like our actual energetic sense of gender is fluid and actually changes from moment to moment, more or less the way our thoughts and feelings might? I think that's highly possible. You know, it's interesting because you break it down. It's like, for example, what is masculinity? And why do we have attributions or expectations that masculine people, you know, drive trucks and drink whiskey or like baseball or whatever? Is there something about a person's kind of energy that shows up that way? Is it because of the social relationships that they engage in and are drawn to that they show up in that way? Is it because they just have preferences that tend to line up with certain kinds of culturally constructed categories around gender? I don't know. But certainly for me, and I think for a lot of my clients, those binary categories are constraining and uncomfortable. So I don't want to globalize and say everybody's gender is fluid. But I personally find it to be much more creative and interesting to just have an open space where gender can play. And then from context to context, my gender can constellate in a way that seems appropriate to me or to that energy or to that context. I think that sorting my gender has involved a lot of self-examination and examination of how I manifest in situations and how that's a fluid thing. So gender shows up in all of these different ways, right? We can choose how we dress, because that's coded in a gendered way. We can choose how we speak, which is coded in a gendered way. Different ways of moving, bodies, different preferences or different things that we like are coded in a gendered way. 
who we're attracted to can be connected to gender. I would say that for me, gender is so moment to moment. Like for me, even the texture of my felt sense of energy in my body changes. It's happening right now. Like the way I'm talking, my tone of voice and the way I'm, you can't see it, but the way I'm moving my hand in my body right now is different from when we were starting to have this conversation. So like right now I'm feeling more softness Hmm. and um, speaking more slowly, almost like my energy is settled in my body a little bit differently, sort of closer to the pelvis and nearer the spine, which before I was speaking in a more kind of authoritative and informational way, more like head-centered. My energy felt more penetrating and pointed in one direction, you know. And Kate Bornstein's New Gender Workbook is a really good resource that I used to start out my own gender questions. And Kate talks about creative gender anarchy as her ideal end goal for doing gender work, which is a person can wake up in the morning and then they decide, oh, this is my gender today. And I've had periods of more feminine expression and others with more prototypically masculine coded expression in terms of how I dress or how I show up in a day or in a week, you know? And nowadays it's less chunky than that. It's more fluid. One way of thinking about gender is on a spectrum of kind of male to female or masculine to feminine with some kind of neutral or androgynous thing in the middle. But it's also possible to think of gender as a constellation. Here's a masculine star. Here's a gender neutral star. Here's a butch star. You know, there's like all of these things and axes to it. While reading this book, I've been thinking about my own gender qualities, and it's a very nebulous, kind of mysterious realm. Mm -hmm. Not Mm -hmm. that easy for me to pin down in any concrete way. Mm -hmm. And I don't even mean to try and identify one binary versus another, but to try and locate myself on Mm -hmm. a spectrum. Yeah. No, it makes sense that it would be really slippery. And there's a lot of different terminology in this realm of gender nonconformity from trans and genderqueer, non-binary, and lots of other terms, many of which are totally new to me, and I suspect are very new to most people who will be listening to this. So I was wondering if you could talk about some of the terminology and help define what these different terms mean to help people to understand the experience you know, the actual real-life experience of people who may self-identify in these ways, even if it can be fluid at times? Sure, I'll I'll give it a shot. The first thing I would like to say about what you were saying, Tony, about the kind of nebulousness is that part of why it can be hard to find clear traction of one's own experience is that so often we've been deprived of language. I'm 38, and... I didn't encounter any of this language around non-binary and genderqueer identities until like 2013, so six years ago, so it's 32. And my gender experience has fit into this kind of space since my youth, since I could remember I never fit into these different boxes. So the fact that I didn't acquire language to understand my experience and make it relatable to other people until my 30s meant that I spent, you know, three decades kind of fumbling around in the dark, not understanding something about my experience and why I felt differently from other people. And there was something really missing about that for me. So I'm really glad to have the language now 
And it just points that there's a real value of language to make our own experience understandable and to help people relate to themselves and to other people in a way that can, they can sort out their experience. My partner, who is also a non-binary person, Caden and I run a non-binary support group together in Portland. And part of what's so valuable about that group is that people start to share their own experiences and share language for their experience that makes things mutually understandable and gives people words reflected through another person's experience so that things finally make sense. So there's so much value in having a shared language and finding one's place in the language. So I'm happy to give some sort of provisional definitions. And for people who are interested in this kind of gender diversity, either for themselves or other people, talking to more people about it in person can be a really valuable experience for finding a kind of shared understanding and empowerment around it. So the first main category of gender that most people are familiar with would be what we might call cisgendered. Cis is a Latin word meaning the same. So if a person is cisgendered, it means that their feeling around gender identity or their gender position matches what they were assigned at birth. So in the introduction, you said that I was born into a male body. And I would say, you know, I was born into a body with a penis, but I wouldn't say that there was anything inherently male about that body because of the way that maleness is an ascribed category, right? Because even though that's the body I was born into, when we say man or male in U.S. culture, that means things like the Marlboro man and likes football and fighting and, you know, doesn't like talking about feelings and all of this stuff, all of these sort of artificially constructed categories. So there's a cisgender male box and there's a cisgender female box and in the given binary gender mainstream categories, the sort of traditional or typical categories most of us have received in U.S. white culture, those are the two options, which means that there's very little room outside of those boxes, right? And then if you step outside of them, you become an oppressed category. So, for example, for a person with a penis to wear a dress in mainstream U.S. culture means that they're somehow less than, right? There's somehow something to be mocked and derided and possibly a person who might experience violence, right? Mm -hmm. And so on. And so from these regularly policed categories of male and female cisgenders, there's a binary trans identity, which means that a person who was assigned being in one box wants to move into a location in the other box which is what a lot of people think about when they think of transgender people, is they think of transgender men. So a transgender man is someone who wants to be in or is in the position of being a man, but was assigned to a female identity at birth, and they are a man. So that's a trans man. And a transgender woman is a person who is a woman, but was assigned a male identity at birth, and either is fully inhabiting a female identity, or is on her way to. So those are binary trans categories. So in a sense, it's a bit of a flip-flop. One can move from one binary gender position to another binary gender position, male and female being the binary gender positions. And then non-binary is sort of a catch-all term for something other than a male position or a female position. And 
there are lots of other possibilities too. But that's sort of a brief introduction to some of the language. I'm talking with Sasha Strong. Sasha is a non-binary gendered person. They're also a practicing Buddhist, and they contributed a wonderful piece to a fascinating new anthology about the nexus between non-conforming gender identity and Buddhism, titled Transcending Trans-Buddhist Voices. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Well, what about the term queer or gender queer? Well, I think queering comes in part from the work of Judith Butler and her critique in Gender Trouble of the performativity of gender and how all of this stuff is made up. And there's nothing real or definitive about any of these gender categories. And it also comes in part from the work of Foucault and how Michel Foucault critiqued discourses of power and how they create subject positions such as man and woman. And then realizing it's actually possible to disrupt all of that and have some kind of location outside of or in contraposition to those discourses of power. So people use queer sometimes as an umbrella term to talk about LGBTQIA2+, et cetera. The plus is the et cetera part. Some people use queer as a term to reclaim, a term that has historically been an insult to people who were either divergent in terms of their attraction or their expression around gender and sexuality. Some people don't like the term queer, particularly older generations of lesbian, gay, and bisexual people. And probably some trans people who are in an older generation don't like queer because it still sounds like a slur to them. And queer, in some sense, is really about going beyond any particular fixed definition. It's about troubling the boundaries of gender and orientation altogether. And that said, Judith Butler was, I read an interview with her, and she was like, I don't even believe why people are using the word queer to self-define themselves. The whole point was, let's go beyond that. And now people are using that word to say, I'm queer. So it's an interesting question. And why do certain people use it in what circumstances? And then what's gender queer, which is a whole other question, which for some people is really about this notion of my gender exists outside of any of these given boxes. And I want to play with it and combine and create and find new horizons of gender that aren't constrained by any of these conventional categories, particularly. And that's one possible definition of gender queer. Mm -hmm. One fascinating nexus between this gender issue and Buddhism is identity. And I would love for you to talk about the importance of personal identity. And Kevin Manders, one of the editors and curators of this collection, he wrote a piece titled something to the effect of becoming or finding one's sense of place or, or one's sense of wholeness only to let it go. Uh -huh. So like coming to terms with one's identity and then getting to a place of letting it go. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess the first thing I would say is that, you know, Buddhism is pretty suspicious about the self, and yet it has a lot of techniques for investigating the self. Right. It spends a lot of time and energy involved in the process of self-investigation. <laughs> There's the term uh -huh. self in there. So, yeah, it's, it's sort of paradoxical. But it seems like a necessary mm -hmm. thing that we have to deal with. Yeah. And 
to complicate things a bit further, I think that part of what is challenging about translating Buddhism to the West is I think that there are ways that, like from the Buddhist perspective, the human mirage of the self is a transcultural phenomenon, maybe an epiphenomenon of our particular, whatever mutation it is that makes us human in certain ways also produces the sense of self, of like abiding self in time, is the core of the Buddhist critique. And at the same time, the Western contemporary sense of self, I think, is probably quite distinct from other constructed notions of self that have existed throughout time. So taking the historically developed different formations of self that have existed in Asia and then importing that to the West to confront like U.S. white patriarchal self and to work with that self is also adapting something to a new context and working with a new sense of self. That's part of what the extra complicated thing. So I can speak to how I use that to work with the gender formation aspects of self that I experienced in my male socialization and my white socialization. I think for a long time with Buddhism, I had the mistaken understanding that the self is the enemy and that it was necessary somehow violently to attack and destroy the self, which in a sense was just a further extension of the violence of colonialism and cis-heteropatriarchy on the one hand and a manifestation of internal transmisogyny and trans-hostility on the other hand. There's a certain way that those things lined up and stacked so that I used a set of teachings to do violence to my experience in a certain way, in a way that I think a lot of people in the West are taught to do violence to themselves and to their own experience. Like there's a way that the self in the U.S., a lot of us are taught like we're bad people and therefore we need to either improve ourselves or keep punishing ourselves, which was some of the aspects of self that I discovered on my journey of uncovering the self. And I think that self in terms of gender creativity is also really interesting because in a gender transition process, there sometimes is a really acute need to consolidate a new sense of self. And I think that that's actually a really important part of it, is to find ways of, like, striking the camp of the old gendered sense of self, you know, like taking the tent poles out and pulling the stakes up and, like, folding the whole thing up, and then also finding a new ground to, to have a new sense of self and to have a new sense of self-structure and how one's gender aligns with the rest of one's life. So there is really this gender, the self deconstruction and reconstruction. And in my way of thinking, the ability to be fluid like that around gender, for me, was really helped by my Buddhist practice because I had already done some work of deconstructing and reconstructing my sense of self. And so, like I said, I was 32 when I first encountered and started to do my own gender work when I first encountered the language at a conference in um, Denver called Gold Rush specifically a transgender conference. But I had encountered Buddhism, you know, when I was about 23. So I'd already had 10 years of some kind of work with meditation practice and, and working with my own mind. So I already had encountered some fluidity. So I had less of an inclination to, like, totally solidify a new sense of self in a gender position. And I think that Buddhism can really be used to examine and investigate all of the forces that constrain and give contour to our experience and give new options for navigating those things and changing them. Certainly for me, Buddhist practice and meditation practices have helped me become more in touch with and able to work with my emotional life. And because gender transition can involve so much emotional labor and mourning and growth 
and joy and just like sorting through complicated feelings, many of which have been around for, you know, in my case, they were around for decades. Like there was a lot of emotional thawing that needed to happen in order for these sorts of things to come forth more freely. And I think that Buddhist practice really helped me also like identify my thought patterns and work with them and not take them so seriously. You know, there's this big thing in Buddhism about getting caught up in thoughts and letting thoughts kind of run the show and letting emotional reactions to thoughts run the show. So there's the way that my meditation practice helped to calm and clarify my experience. I didn't get so entangled with things. And so I could just let that material kind of like float up in awareness and I could see it, but I didn't have to take it all so seriously. So internalized transphobia, I was able to see it at a certain point and then just be like, oh, that's just, those are just clouds in the sky. Like, I don't actually hate myself. I'm not actually, like, <laughs> worthless. Those are just ideas that were fed to me culturally that I can, like, let go of. So that's another way of kind of finding freedom in that and paving the way or opening the way for a new sense of self that can transform and move towards what's organic for me in terms of my gender and the rest of my life. Sort of a mouthful. <laughs> that was great. So I'm curious from what you were saying, do you think that language or having language is essential to this process of self-exploration in these ways? Yeah, it's important. It's really important to have language because language helps us to bookmark experience and then find a new stance to it. Like if somebody is in the next room and they want a glass of water, but they can't get up, it's way easier for them to say, will you please bring me a glass of water? So in terms of understanding one's own gender position, or for example, in terms of understanding how to regard one's own mind in a meditation practice, it's essential to have instructions that can guide that process that also don't get in the way of experience, experience like direct perceptual experience. Mm -hmm. Like it's really important to have the capacity for concept and cognition and um, framework to understand experience and make it tractable. But at the same time, to be only trapped in language is its own trap too. Right. While you were describing the example of getting a glass of water and being able to ask another person to help, you know, using language, it occurred to me that's so much more effective than when you really want a glass of water and you can't do it yourself and you know there's somebody else who can do it. It's so much more effective to use language in a skillful way rather than to break down and have a tantrum. Uh-huh. Right. Because a tantrum isn't co-ate. It's not articulate. Right. And right. I think in our culture, there's a lot of tantrums going on, a lot of adult tantrums going on, because we, don't, we haven't learned the effective use of language to understand ourselves, our own mm. internal, personal experience. And even though, mm. you know, from the Buddhist perspective, it's not that the self is the enemy, but ultimately, in the journey towards freedom... We want to dissolve any fixation or, or sense of attachment to self or, or identity or personal story that limits our fluidity and our, our ultimate freedom. I think that is the precise point, and the distinction is noteworthy, is that it's not about giving up the self, but it's giving up clinging to the self. Yes. And again, it's a paradoxical thing because I think you have to really clearly define or clearly establish one's own direct relationship with our sense of self before we can 
mm-hmm. really let it go or let it be what it is without without making any more of it than what it is as just a, a kind of conceptual vehicle in a sense. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. And I think that's a lot where meditation comes in. You know, and there are lots and lots of Buddhist practices, particularly in the Tibetan tradition, which is my tradition. There are just so damn many practices. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. um, but, but meditation practice is just like sitting meditation is so helpful for investigating micro moments of experience as they arise and actually getting really familiar with experience and how the self relates to experience and also for getting out of our ideas of experience like formulating ideas of experience, but also getting out of them. So it's really working at this paradoxical level of deeply investigating the self and deeply investigating experience, and then somehow, in so doing, letting go. It's, it's fascinating. Yes, I totally, totally agree. It's like there's all sorts of metaphors like, like walking a razor's edge or a tightrope. Yeah. There's this Dogen quote. I'm going to mangle it a bit, but to study... The Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be one with the myriad things. How and why does that work? I don't know, but it seems true. It seems true to me. I don't know if it's just that I've been brainwashed by Buddhism, <laughs> but, but that, that accords with my experience, actually, which is fascinating, you know? Yeah, I don't think you've been brainwashed because I've come to that realization too and I have very little in the way of Buddhist philosophy and theorizing. The main area of my Buddhist practice has been in the Tibetan Buddhist realm as well. And I've done numerous different practices, but all of them pretty much without any philosophical background or intellectual processing around. Uh-huh. And I think in many ways that's been really helpful because I think it's really easy to get trapped or caught up in intellectual concepts around things and to miss the actual direct experience, you know, get caught in the symbol. And that's such a a Western thing to do, to get caught up in the whole intellectual understanding of things, thinking that that's what it's all about. That's what reality really is. Totally. It reminds me of something that somebody said to me once years ago at a retreat center. They were talking about the different, succeedingly more elaborate practices in the Vajrayana tradition. And then they were like, yeah, you know, they just give you more elaborate toys, you know? So the fundamental message is still the same. It's like, oh, wisdom arises in space. Or, like, experience happens. And non-dual pristine awareness is occurring and available. But some people feel like they need all of these toys to approach that. And I think that there's a way that that stuff can hold the mind. But it's also true, if you start to take it too seriously, you get caught up in those concepts, whereas the whole point is to break through to direct experience. Right. And that can be very, very tricky in our Western culture with our intellectual orientation. Yeah, an additional way I've heard it theorized is just about embodiment. Yes, yes. I love that that notion. Um, This radio station is on the campus of Goddard College, and and they have a dedicated embodiment studies program. And 
the faculty and students are are all f- deeply fascinated with all of this stuff, but on the most practical levels. And this book, this this anthology that you contributed to, these stories and accounts that people have written in this book remind me very much of the stories that I hear from people here. So in this book, it seems like people are coming to these realizations pretty quickly, and there is a tremendous amount of suffering that people are going through as they navigate this crazy world that we live in. So it's not an easy process, obviously. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that there's a way, the logic is a bit circular, but I think that for some people, suffering certain experiences of suffering can facilitate a transformation of the relationship to self. But then, you know, everybody suffers, and there are all kinds of horrendous suffering. So I don't think that measuring individuals on a particular line of experiences. But I know that for me, what got me into Buddhism in the first place was really about pain. And so I really had to come face-to-face with issues around self and my relationship to experience you know, pretty early in life, in my early 20s, was when it really kind of came to a head. So while that period was very painful, I don't regret it particularly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I came to all of this the same way. I was in a lot of pain, very disoriented, feeling very alienated within this culture. And it's interesting, in a lot of these stories, numerous people are talking about equating some of this with quote-unquote mental illness and I remember reading a while back one author said schizophrenia is a natural response to this culture and I know from my own personal experience and I've gone through a lot of suffering which is primarily based on mental delusion Mm -hmm. yeah it's interesting how those things stack And I got into this because of an experience that was labeled bipolar in my early 20s. And then I'm in a PhD program right now. And my dissertation is about how people recover from bipolar disorder using mindfulness, meditation, and Buddhist ideas. So I talked with nine people about their experience. And just understanding how people have used these practices in order to get new footing with that experience and to make that particular style of suffering tractable in a new way. I've spent, you know, the better part of the last year and a half just focused on that question. And I think it is true that the culture has a shockingly alienating effect. And also that I think my gender experience is actually one of the splits that were created in me by the culture. Like my gender, for example, I conceive of as more of some kind of unitary, non-binary meanness you know, gender, energy, or whatever, but I was bifurcated twice around orientation and gender. You know, I had sort of imposed on me, oh, you're supposed to be attracted to this kind of person, you're not supposed to be attracted to this other kind of person. And in another direction, I had imposed on me, you're supposed to be this kind of person, you're not supposed to be this kind of person. So I really spent a long time kind of sorting out that split and doing things kind of internally and externally to figure out like, oh, what's my actual position, kind of dismantling emotional barriers that the culture created inside of me. And I think that for a lot of the folks who talked to me in the study about their experience of bipolar disorder, based on their biographical experiences, they also had a lot of 
pain that came from like the social context and from the culture and also from really wanting some kind of meaning and purpose to their life that wasn't made available to them in the situation they found themselves in. So I think that people found a lot of new meaning and new purpose in their engagement with Buddhism was also really important. And yeah, as kind of a countervailing force to materialism and the exploitation of capitalism. And people like, oh, here's something I could do to sort up my own emotions and then help other people in turn was very inspiring for folks I spoke with. So I'm curious how all this helped you to overcome or or to come to terms with your bipolar issues. Because I think the way you just defined our culture, bipolar experience seems to be a very natural and almost expected result of our extreme insistence upon making everything so clear-cut, black and white, right, wrong, Mm -hmm. male, female, you know. Mm -hmm. I think part of how Buddhism and meditation helped me is building an unconditional relationship with myself and with my experience, teaching me to show up to my experience and to my state of mind, whether, so to speak, my mind was black or white, or whether my feeling about myself was warm or cold or prickly or gentle. It's like learning how to have an unconditional relationship with myself is what really actually healed all of these splits. And that's something that Buddhism really helped me to do. So is it by allowing the space for all of these disparate elements and aspects of our experience to be that healing naturally occurs? Well, it seems that way to me. I mean, sometimes being with what is, the next step is seeing what needs to be done, and then the third step is doing it. Like, I think sometimes direct engagement is necessary, but before engagement, it's necessary to see. And then in some sense, before you can see, you have to be somehow. So I think another thing that the practice really helped me with is to reconnect with a sense of being. Like Mark Epstein wrote a book called Going on Being, where he talks about really showing up for oneself even when you feel empty and worthless. And then somehow by showing up with yourself when you feel empty and worthless, you fill that space up. But the only way to fill it is to tolerate it and then really be with yourself, you know? So I think being with myself and also perhaps being with the culture is a way to overcome that. But I'm not certain because I'm not sure how well it translates to work with internal experience and then to work with external experience in a social way. Because it's not enough simply to look at the culture and to be with it. Like, we actually have to make structural change broadly. I mean, my best guess is organizing, you know, and making mass demands in order to provoke the kind of structural change that's required. And, you know, there's a long history of engaged Buddhism and engaged Buddhist writing, or you look at Buddhist peace fellowship and some of the actions that they do. And at the same time, like, you know, Buddhism is this small minority subculture in U.S. culture. How much can those people have an impact? I don't know. And how well do they ally with other people, given the sort of pseudo-traditional Western insulated solitary Buddhist practitioner or the people who go to a room to sit 
silently in meditation together and don't really engage with each other, you know. You know, one thing I think of is Stacey Haynes' work in generative somatics and that using a certain kind of common from embodiment practice to give frontline protesters tools to calm their nervous systems and stay resilient and engaged so that they don't have the nervous systems be too shocked by confrontations with police and security forces. But yeah, how do we bring these things into the world in order to engage effectively? And honestly, I think that Buddhism has a long history of collusion with sources of power. You know, you look at the establishment of monasteries in the Asian cultures, and a lot of them are supported by wealthy patrons and government. And there's a way that that's a really smart way to survive as a tradition. But on the other hand, is that going to be an effective response to the very real and critical needs of our time? Mm-hmm. I'm just not sure that colluding with capitalism is going to help us in the climate crisis, using Buddhism, for example. You know? Climate destruction is built into capitalism, along with depression and racism and all of those things. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, it's quite a challenge. Seriously. Yeah, very seriously. We're getting closer and closer to that final edge, it seems. It's so intense. And I think there actually is immense value in Buddhism and meditation to find ways to navigate that particular cultural madness, that global cultural madness, and not be totally thrown off. But if what it means is that we do that and then we continue to participate, it's actually ineffective. And that's what's happening in Western mindfulness is that it's being promoted in corporations to make workers more effective mm-hmm. and they can manage their stress at being in this exploitative, world-wrecking system, you know? Right, to selectively filter out the distractions that, that don't support productivity and mm-hmm. the corporate bottom line. Totally. Whereas in this predominantly white middle-class American Buddhism, not only are these people beginning from a very privileged and relatively comfortable place, but the meditation work can easily make it even more insulated and more comfortable to the point where it can easily completely block out the outer world as well as rationalize it away as being an illusion. Yeah, totally. And that's the profound perversion of Dharma that's happening right now. And it makes me think of totalitarian cults, both because there is a cult-like tendency in some Buddhist organizations, but because of how corporate America can function like an isolating cult where you're not able to really discuss what's happening, or capitalism can function that way. There's a book that came out a couple of years ago by Alexandra Stein called Terror, Love, and Brainwashing, And she's specifically looking at these different cults that people were engaged in. But I think that there's a real danger of mindfulness being used to further the sense of isolation and like kind of brainwashing into capitalism, you know? And I don't think that's the only way it's got to go. I think there's all kinds of ways to use it, but there's some kind of connection there. Mm -hmm. It could also be that because we are such a young culture and that all of this meditation and mindfulness practice is very new to us by comparison to the centuries and millennia that it's existed in the East, that perhaps this may just be a natural evolution of our integrating this experience and and hopefully become wisdom. 
within our experience. Yeah, I agree with what you say, including all of the hedging about hopefully. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Because it also really depends on people with the proper ethical alignment continuing to push that envelope and say, no, you know, you can't, as far as I'm concerned, you can't really be Buddhist and also support capitalism because capitalism is such a machine of oppression and creates suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, and whereas it's really easy to say, well, Buddha said that, you know, suffering is everywhere, so I'm just going to try to go along with it. And and it's like, that's fine if a person has that particular motivation at a certain point in time. Like, I'm not saying that's a bad motivation, but in a sense, it's a grander motivation to then say, oh, I'm actually going to help people. And part of what I'm going to help people is to confront this world-destroying machine that is, you know, transnational corporate capitalism. Right, and... There's an inordinate focus on just mindfulness practice, and then there's the other, what some people consider to be the second wing of the bird, the compassion and kindness aspect of it, the Tonglen type of meditation practice that can make or round out that practice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is that enough? Is that enough to give Westerners perspective and move them toward seeing through the evils of capitalism or the inevitabilities of capitalism? No, that's not enough. You need an analysis. Sitting in meditation and like loving kindness practice, those are very, very good. But just, you know, it's just like Buddhism. Buddhism needs a view. If there's no like conceptual frame for understanding what you're doing and why you're doing it, it's kind of like riding a bike but not knowing where to go, you know? <laughs> so I think in terms of, like, working with capitalism, there are lots of different Buddhist practices that could be brought to bear on one's own position and how to remove obstacles to being an effective agent for positive social change. But there also needs to be a view or an analysis about what capitalism is and why it functions in the way that it does and what might be effective strategies to engage with that is my opinion. Mm-hmm. So what do you think is an effective strategy to deal with capitalism? Is there anything short of just dismantling it entirely? I think that would be the ultimate goal. I think that in the meantime, we should do everything we can to try to create state regulation to reduce the harms of capitalism. You know, for example, Trump is rolling back EPA protections. In the meantime, we should reinstate those protections. You know, for example, Amazon should pay taxes. <laughs> for example, you know, I had read recently. I don't. There's some email chain, or maybe on a website. It's like the wrong Amazon is burning. Like maybe what needs to happen is we need to impose taxes on Amazon, the corporation, in order to actually protect Amazon, the completely critical biome of the tropical rainforest. You know, so I think that the endpoint of dismantling capitalism. And having something else in its place that could actually provide a sustainable political and economic framework that wasn't made up of pyramids of oppression and exploitation would be excellent. And in the meantime, I think that we should do everything we can to reduce the impact of capitalism and rein it in using you know, policy and legislation. Mm-hmm. But that's easy to say for those of us who are aware of that. What can help bring the necessary critical mass of people to that level of awareness that will actually create 
the level of change that we need at this point? I wish I knew. <laughs> you know, I'm reading Noam Chomsky recently. And reading Noam Chomsky, I'm reminded of times in my 20s where I tried to read Noam Chomsky, and I just didn't have the kind of critical consciousness I needed to approach the kind of discourse he makes. Because it's all wrapped up in kind of current affairs when he does these kind of political interview-based books. He always has an interviewer who's asking him about his opinions of things, and then he gives them. But I just couldn't get into it in my 20s. I, I didn't know enough to read between the lines or something. Whereas now I'm able to like read it and get a little more traction with it and understand aspects of where he's coming from and maybe more about why he's doing it in that way. But, you know, Noam says, basically, we just need mass mobilization because the people in power have no incentive to change things. You know, his opinion is that's the only way to go. So how do we educate people and how do we mobilize people and how do we connect people so that they can participate together in a meaningful way? You know, you look at Extinction Rebellion as an example of a mass mobilization movement that's happening right now. You know, when you look at Greta sailing across the sea to come be at these climate strikes last month in New York, you know, I think that there are people who are doing things and organizing and participating in these mass mobilization movements. And my guess is that that's the way to go because the powers that be are structurally disinclined to make changes. You know, and, and even if you get somebody into these offices, the offices are stacked so that the kind of information that they get and the kind of people that they benefit are always those in power who are at the head of systems that are designed to exploit people and the climate in order to profit. It's just baked in. It's baked into corporations. And it's baked into U.S. government, probably from the beginning. Yeah, I'm afraid I totally agree with you. And talking about it and hearing you reaffirm it, doesn't give me much sense of hope with all of this. I know. And, and in response to that, I'm actually holding this Chomsky book, and the title is Optimism Over Despair. Mm -hmm. Well, oddly uh, enough, I'm essentially <laughs> very optimistic, even though I am and have been for a long time very soberly aware of the dysfunctions that we face. But somehow or other, it's sort of like the Zen Cohen of the person who's fallen off the cliff and he's hanging by a root and there's yeah, a yeah, tiger yeah. below him and he sees a strawberry and there's an opportunity right. <laughs> to be uh -huh. present to enjoy the present to experience radical joy in a, in a very difficult time for sure yeah and i think that that's life happening there's a way that i really trust life and there's a way that dance of optimism and joy is necessary whether it's necessary in order to cope what we're dealing with or if it's a necessary stance to take in order to continue to function, I think it's also necessary in order to keep on fighting for change, you know, positive social change globally. I think that the sweetness of that strawberry is real because life remains beautiful, even though we're in this maddening culture that is on the precipice of really destroying our very substrate of civilized life and the biosphere, life remains beautiful. So it's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Yes. Yeah. And I think in order to be able to create the kind of change that we need, we have to allow the space for the creativity necessary for that to occur, to happen. And I don't think we could do that in a state of despair or being overwhelmed totally. by despair. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Well, that's a great renewal of hope <laughs> right there. Mm -hmm. And the way they talk about 
spaciousness in Buddhism, probably infinite spaciousness that's way, way beyond anything we can conceive of. And if we can just tap into a sense of that realm of possibility, then maybe really anything is possible if we, as you say, think in terms of a direction to take our work in, mm-hmm. or whatever our passion is, or inclination towards life, rather than just gazing at our navel or being narcissistic in any other way. Mm, totally. Which, of course, would be bucking the American dream. Yeah, there's so many dreams to wake up from. Yeah, exactly. Well, I've really enjoyed talking with you. Likewise. Do you have any final words to offer before we go? Uh, I guess I would just like to say it's really good to keep up hope and to be creative, you know, around gender, around the culture, around Buddhism even, and just in life. I think it's so good to listen to folks with the multiplicity of viewpoints to, to clarify our own. And I hope that whoever listens to this just plant some seed of resilience and courage and hope and just that we could all get through this together. Mm-hmm. Well, again, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been great talking. Yes, you too. Bye-bye. And that was Sasha Strong. Sasha is a non-binary gender person. They have a psychotherapy practice in Portland, Oregon, serving gender non-binary people, as well as more binary gender-identified people. They're also a practicing Buddhist, and they contributed a wonderful piece to a fascinating and wonderful new anthology titled Transcending, Trans... Buddhist Voices.
an ocean of emotion and divine devotion Opening the notions of medicines and potions Emanating the brilliance of a trillion suns As love flows in the current of the river that runs Tapping and unraveling a sacred conversation Grounding meditation in crazed illumination Communicating love is its own demonstration Arteries are city streets, open navigation Heart pulses, beats, lungs and trees both breathe deep As I leaf beat when the seasons repeat Subways and trains, blood vessels and veins All one in the same brain, given a different name Love is the limit as we give the heart a visit Moving up and then we're in it as we're living by the minute Impermanent phenomena, rise and fall To a feeling always calling, creating us all it for this magical mystery tour thank you all so much for listening and until next time have a wonderful week (laughs) 